discovery of non-Euclidean geometry in the early 19th century was quite a wake-up call. It showed that everybody had been a bit naive, you might say. Here's an analogy for this. Suppose we had all been speaking one language, let's say English, for example, and we were all convinced that English is the only natural language. In fact, that question didn't even arise to us. We simply assumed that English and language is the same thing. We even had philosophers who were explaining why English is a priori necessary. These philosophers had proved they thought that without English, the very notion of linguistic communication or thought is impossible. And then we discovered, whoops, actually there are French speakers, Chinese speakers. Ouch, that's very embarrassing, isn't it? English is actually not necessary after all. It's not innate. It is not synonymous with language itself. For thousands of years, we made those embarrassing mistakes because we were not aware of the existence of other languages. That's how it was with geometry. What I said about English corresponds to Euclidean geometry. For thousands of years, nobody thought of Euclidean geometry as one kind of geometry. Everybody thought of it as the geometry. Geometry and Euclidean geometry are the same thing. Just as an isolated linguistic community thinks that their language is the language. And the philosophers that I talked about, Kant is an example of that. Kant argued that Euclidean geometry was a necessary precondition for having spatial experience or spatial perception at all. Which is like saying that English is necessary for any kind of linguistic expression. In fact, already long before Kant, many people had been convinced by how intuitively natural and obvious the axioms of Euclidean geometry feel. Descartes, for instance, and many others made a lot of this fact. You remember how important it was to Descartes that our intuitions were truths implanted by God in our minds. Well, we all think our native language is intuitive, and we think other people's languages are not intuitive. This feeling is so strong that we are convinced that it must be objective. When we try to learn a foreign language, it feels impossible that anybody could think that that was intuitive. And yet they do. So apparently our intuitions can deceive us. We feel that our native grammar is much more natural than everyone else's, but it's a delusion. It feels like an objective fact, but it turned out to be subjective. Could it be the same with geometry? Could the alleged naturalness and intuitiveness of Euclidean geometry turn out to be just another arbitrary cultural bias, like thinking that English feels more natural than French? So, ouch, we took quite a hit there with the discovery of non-Euclidean geometry. It exposed our insularity. It showed that things we had thought we had proven to be impossible were in fact perfectly possible and every bit as viable as what we had thought was the only way to do geometry. And yet, there is hope as well. The language analogy, it doesn't just expose what an embarrassing mistake we made or how non-Euclidean geometry really hit us where it hurts. The language analogy also suggests a way out, a way to rise from the ashes. We were wrong about the specific claim that Euclidean geometry is innate, that's like saying that English is innate. Nevertheless, we were right too, one could argue. Language is impossible without something innate. Everybody learns their native language with incredible fluency. Every child learns it somehow with hardly any systematic teaching. They just pick it up naturally. And they do so 
at a very early age, when their general intelligence is still very limited. Meanwhile, no animal comes anywhere near achieving the same feat, nor in fact any adult human for that matter. I'm better than a three-year-old child at any intellectual task except learning French. Somehow the child is super good at that. That's one thing. So clearly, something about language is innate. The ability for language acquisition is innate. Some kind of general principles of language must be innate to explain how the child can excel at this one task. And perhaps geometry is like language in this way. Maybe we have some innate geometry. Not specific Euclidean propositions or axioms, maybe, but some kind of geometry-ness, nevertheless. Some sort of more structural or general principles of geometry than specific propositions, just as our innate linguistic ability doesn't contain anything specific to any one language, but instead it has to do with language-ness in general. So also geometry could perhaps include geometry-ness, but not the details the way you could spell them out. In linguistics, this idea is called universal grammar. Every language has its own grammar, of course, but there are some more general or structural principles of language that are the same for all human languages. So this common core is what is called universal grammar. Here's an example of such a principle that belongs to universal grammar. Consider the statement, the man is tall. It's a declaration, an assertion. You could turn it into a question. Is the man tall? Question mark. We turn the assertion into a question by moving the is to the front of the sentence. That's how you make questions from statements. You start with assertions, the man is tall, and you move the is to the front. Is the man tall? So that's a recipe for making questions. Consider now the statement, the man who is tall is in the room. How do you form the corresponding question? There are two ises in this sentence. So the rule, in order to turn a statement into a question, move the is to the front. That rule is now ambiguous. Which of the two ises should we move to the front of the statement? So it could become, is the man who is tall in the room? Okay, that works. But if we move the other is to the front of the sentence, then we get total nonsense. Is the man who tall is in the room? Well, that didn't work. It didn't make a question, it just made it gibberish. Even though we followed the same rule as before, you move the is to the front, in one case, you know, you've you got to pick the right is, otherwise you get uh, the completely wrong way around. If language was nothing but a social construction, then it should be perfectly reasonable for children trying to form questions to come up with the gibberish alternative. If the child simply extracts general rules from a bunch of examples, it would have been perfectly reasonable for the child to have guessed that the general rule is move the first is to the front of the sentence to form a question, which would lead to the nonsense question, is the man who tall is in the room? In fact, however, children make many mistakes in language learning, but never mistakes such as this one. Apparently, the child is employing a structure-dependent rule rather than the much simpler rule to just put the first is in front. Why could that be? There seems to be no explanation in terms of uh, communicative efficiency or similar considerations. Certainly it's absurd to argue that children are trained to use this structure-dependent rule of selecting the correct is in this case. 
the only reasonable conclusion is that the universal grammar contains the principle that all such rules must be structure-dependent. That is, the child's mind contains the instruction, construct a structure-dependent rule, ignoring all structure-independent rules. So, the, But when the child is trying to learn where which kinds of ises, it has a predetermined conditions about which kinds of ises you should be uh, uh, focusing on and which not. So although each language has its own grammar, there are some general principles like those that are universal, common to all languages. And those principles are hardwired into the mind at birth. That's the idea of the universal grammar. And this stuff about the innate universal grammar is the view of Noam Chomsky, the famous 20th century linguist. And the example and explanation that I just quoted are his examples. It's from his book, Reflections on Language. There are many debates about Chomsky linguistics. This perspective of universal grammar is not accepted by everybody. But I'm going to assume this Chomsky point of view for the purposes of this discussion, because his parallels with geometry are very interesting. So you might say that this view of language is Kantian in a way. We saw that Kant put a lot of emphasis on the necessary preconditions for certain kinds of knowledge. Like geometry, for example, is not an external freestanding theory that we can analyze with our general intellectual capacities. Rather, the fundamental concepts of geometry are bound up with the very cognitive structure of our mind itself. So some things are purely learned through experience and convention in life, like, for instance, how to play chess or how to dance the tango. But some things that we know are not like that. For instance, the way we experience color. The mind is made to see red and blue and to not see infrared light and so on. That is a fixed domain-specific property of how our mind works. You can neither learn nor unlearn that through general intelligence. Color experience is just one of those basic things hardwired right into the brain. From the Chomskyan point of view, language is like that as well. Language is not merely a social construct with man-made rules like chess or tango, nor is it explicable in terms of general intelligence only. Chess or tango you can learn by general intelligence. That is to say, if you spend enough time looking at people playing chess or people dancing, you can eventually learn or figure out what the rules are by general rational thinking, you know, pattern recognition. You, you form preliminary hypotheses about how you think it works, how you, what you think the rules are, and then you observe some more to check if maybe you need to revise your hypotheses, take into account some other possible circumstances or, or cases and so on. So eventually you learn this way, what the rules of chess are, what to, how to dance the tango and so Color experience is not like that. You don't learn to experience redness by watching other people. It just is. If you're not born with it, you can't learn it by general intelligence like you can learn chess. So the claim is then that language is similar to color and not similar to chess. You don't learn color perception by watching others or using general intelligence to figure out the patterns and the rules. General intelligence is not sufficient to sustain such a manner of, of learning about colors. Many people overestimate the potential of general purpose intelligence. Both Kant and Chomsky agree about this. Remember the title of Kant's work, A Critique of Pure Reason. Pure reason or general purpose intelligence 
is not by itself capable of generating human linguistic capacity or geometric experience. The capacities of our mind depend much more than people realize on domain-specific conceptions. It is obvious that color experience is a hardwired specific domain of our cognitive structure, and it isn't just the outcome of some pattern recognition process of general purpose intelligence. It's less obvious that geometry is like that or that language is like that, but Kant and Chomsky maintain that, in fact, they are. According to them, we underestimate the extent to which basic geometrical and linguistic conceptions are intertwined with the very nature of our mind and our cognitive capacities. So the wrong way to think about it would be like this. The human brain is a general-purpose thinking machine. Imagine a person in a prehistoric hunter-gatherer society. That person's general intelligence mind might think to itself, Oh, well, it's great that I'm so smart. I can learn many things, like which plants are poisonous. I can pick it from experience, or I can figure out uh, how to make fire, how to use tools, and stuff like that. But, oh, look, uh, wouldn't it be handy if I could also communicate my thoughts to others? Then we could organize collaborations, we could learn from each other's experience, etc. I know, let me invent language. Oh, oh, that's going to work for this purpose, you know. So, from the Chomskyan point of view, this kind of story that I narrated is wrong because it overestimates the the potential of the general purpose mind. In fact, you will have noted, of course, that I described what the pre-linguistic mind was thinking by using language. But I was talking about this hypothetical stage in history where there, when there was no language. So does it even make sense to imagine such a thing as thought without language? No, according to Chomsky. The very nature of thought itself cannot be separated from language in that manner. So the story about a hunter-gatherer inventing language is no more plausible than a story that he invented color experience by discovering that certain wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation are associated with grass, others with fruit, and so on. Instead of thinking of the mind as starting from general purpose intelligence and then inventing domain-specific things like color, language, we should perhaps think of it exactly the other way around. The mind is made up of the domain-specific skills. Those are the fundamental cognitive starting points. Insofar as we have any general-purpose intelligence, that comes from piecing together the domain-specific skills, not the other way around. So from an evolutionary point of view, the human mind perhaps evolved by adding domain-specific modules one by one. First color, then maybe it took 100,000 years or whatever, and then we added geometry, and then maybe 100,000 years later, language, and so on. So we don't have general-purpose intelligence. We only have the sum of our modular parts. But eventually these modules become so advanced and, and they combine in such fruitful and powerful ways that we fool ourselves into thinking that we have general-purpose intelligence, pure reason. But at bottom, our precious pure reason actually still depends more than we realize on domain-specific preconceptions hardwired into our cognitive capacities. That's what Kant said about geometry, and that's what Chomsky said about language. So in this way, we can save Kant, so to speak. The discovery of non-Euclidean geometry was a blow to Kant's idea of the innateness of geometry. Kant associated the intuitiveness of Euclidean geometry with its innateness, 
But that's not really a very good argument because native languages are intuitive and yet they are not innate. And geometry could be the same because just as there are many languages, there are many geometries. This shows that intuitive and innate are certainly not the same thing. So that calls into question the, the Kantian story that the mind is constrained by pre-programmed conceptions. And we can then save Kant with the rebuttal that in fact language too is innate after all. Even though there are many languages that differ in fundamental respects, nevertheless, there is some universal languageness that is common to all languages and without which language learning would be impossible in the first place. Same with geometry. Instead of focusing on the differences between Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometries and concluding from this that no one geometry could be a necessity of thought, we should instead focus on the more fundamental and structural preconceptions common to all geometries without which any kind of geometry would be unthinkable at all. Or we can put it like this. Thought presupposes language. When you think, you think in terms of words and sentences. Of course, thought does not presuppose any specific language. You can think the same thing in English or German. Nevertheless, thought does presuppose that you use some language. There is no pure thought, or hardly any pure thought, that does not involve words that does not depend on language so it's funny thought on the one hand cannot exist without language and yet you can switch out the entire language and still have the same thought so there there's both dependence and independence in a certain sense Kant says basically the same thing but for geometry you can't have spatial perception or spatial reasoning without geometrical presuppositions just as you can't think without presupposing some language, so you can't geometrize without presupposing some geometry. The choice of which language or which geometry you take as the basis for thought is arbitrary. As Kant says, it's a synthetic a priori, it's not an analytic a priori. That is to say, it is not logically necessary that we must use Euclidean geometry as the presupposition for a spatial experience, but it is necessary that we must make some such presupposition. So you recall, as Kant said, we don't have direct access to objective physical reality. We only know the outside world through perception which is always necessarily interpreted. The presuppositions of that interpretation is arbitrary. In fact, it's arbitrary in two ways, one might say. One good and one bad. It's arbitrary in a bad way in that it is subjective. It has no objective justification. It is not a matter that you can demonstrate with pure logic that it must be that way. But it's also arbitrary in a good sense, namely that it doesn't necessarily matter all that much which interpretation we choose. It's just like language. It's arbitrary that I'm speaking English. There's no objective or logical reason for why English is any better than any other language. But it's also arbitrary in that it doesn't matter that I speak English. I could have said the same thing in some other language. And in fact, it's only because of my choice of some arbitrary language that I'm able to say anything at all. Maybe it's just like that with geometry. Our minds think in terms of Euclidean geometry, even though that has no absolute logical justification, yet it would be a mistake perhaps to criticize this as arbitrary subjectivity, because it is only because I have some geometrical preconceptions at all, no matter how subjective, that I'm able to reason spatially and spatial perception and experience at all in the first place. This, 
analogy that geometry is like language is suggestive in other respects as well. Here's an interesting question. When a child is learning their native language by picking up the speech of their parents and their environment, how does the child know which sounds are language and which sounds are other kinds of noises? It's a pretty difficult problem, isn't it? Suppose you had to program a computer to detect and recognize speech. What criteria could you use by which to define how the computer could tell if a given sound is linguistic or not? Words come in many forms. You can scream them, whisper them, sing them. Those are all very different as sounds, but somehow you have to be able to tell that they are all words and all these different forms, they're all words, and you have to be able to distinguish those things from other sounds that are not linguistic, like a doorbell, a barking dog, the sizzling of a frying pan, and so on. And you have the same problem in geometry. Among all the sensory impressions that we are bombarded with every second, which ones should be regarded as geometrical and which not? If geometry is like a language, a child must have some criteria by which to answer this. Just like the child somehow picks out linguistic sounds from the environment and lets that shape their native language, so also the child needs to pick out geometric features of the environment and let that shape their native geometry. That's how their intuitive geometry can become either Euclidean or non-Euclidean, depending on the environment, just as their native language can become English or Russian or whatever, depending on the uh, sensory input. So, we must answer therefore the question, what parts of all our sensory impressions have to do with geometry? You must know that first before you can start thinking about whether those impressions are Euclidean or non-Euclidean. Poincaré had a very elegant solution to this. Here's his criterion for telling geometry from non-geometry. It goes like this. Among all sensory impressions, those are geometrical that you can cancel through self-motion. Let me explain what this means by an example. I have a piece of paper. One side is white and the other side is red. I hold the paper up with the white side facing toward you. Then I rotate it so that the red side is facing toward you. This is a geometrical transformation. It has to do with rotation, with position. You know that it's geometrical because you could walk around and stand on the other side and then you would see the white side of the paper again. So you could cancel the transformation in impressions. You could restore the original sensory impression through self-motion by moving yourself, not by manipulating the environment, but only by moving around in it. So there are many transformations of sensory impressions that are not like that, that are not cancelable or reversible through self-motion, including other kinds of switches from white to red. But pour a white liquid, like a, a lemon sports drink, into a glass. And then you pour in something very red, like the beet juice or strawberry syrup. Then the liquid in the glass went from white to red, just like the paper did when I turned it over. But the liquid is different, because you can't cancel it this time by moving around and looking at it from another point of view. This is precisely why it's not geometrical. The paper example should be interpreted in terms of geometry. If someone asks what happened, then for the paper example you will give an, ex an explanation in geometrical terms. The object rotated 180 degrees. But for the liquid example you will give an explanation in non-geometrical terms. The red liquid 
colors over the white one by some kind of, I don't know, whatever, chemistry or something. It's, it's not geometry anyway. It's not to have to do with rotations and positions and so on. So there you have a very clear criterion for selecting from the environment which things are to be accounted for in terms of geometry and which not. This criterion is cancelability through self-motion. So before a child can tell if their parents speak French or Russian, they must be able to distinguish which sounds are linguistic at all. And before we can tell if the space around us is Euclidean or non-Euclidean, we must first be able to distinguish which sensory impressions have to do with geometry at all. So Poincaré's criteria in terms of self-motion answers this problem. So this suggests that it is only through motion that we can impose a geometric interpretation on our visual impressions. It may feel to us as if our sense of sight is inherently geometrical. Geometry is visual, it lives in the eyes. But Poincaré's perspective suggests that it's more complicated than that. Vision becomes endowed with geometry only through its interaction with self-motion. If we could not move ourselves or our eyes, our sense of sight would be as ungeometrical as our sense of taste or smell. It would just be a bunch of qualitative impressions with no particular structure. With uh, sense and smell, well, you can tell when one thing is different from another, but you can't do much more than that. There's no Pythagorean theorem of taste, you know, that allows you to calculate the taste distance between wine and beer, if you know the distances between beer and water and water and wine, for example, stuff like that. Taste impressions don't have geometrical structure or any kind of comparable structure by which you can perform those kinds of calculations or inferences. And if we didn't have self-motion, then sight would be like that as well. Visual impressions would be just like taste. There's a passage in Rousseau's Emile that fits this perspective. It goes like this. It is only by our own movements that we gain the idea of space. The child has not this idea, so he stretches out his hand to seize the object within his reach or that which is a hundred paces from him. You take this as a sign of tyranny, an attempt to bid the thing draw near or bid you to bring it. Nothing of the kind. It is merely that the child has no conception of space beyond his reach. So the imperfect capacity for self-motion goes with imperfect understanding of space, you might say, in the case of the child. Of course, uh, Rousseau was writing long before Poincaré. I use Poincaré as the point person for this perspective about the role of self-motion in geometry. But indeed, the basic ideas involved there, they go back to centuries before. So Poincaré explained this stuff very well in his book, uh, La Valeur de la Science, of 1905. But that's the culmination of a tradition of more than two centuries. For example, many philosophers had debated the following question. Suppose a person who has been blind all their life has an operation that makes them able to see. Can they then, from visual impressions alone, tell, for example, a cube from a sphere? They already know the difference by touch, but could they then automatically make the connection between that and sight, or would they have to learn to recognize things uh, by sight through experience? This is the so-called uh, Molnier's question. Molnier raised this in 1688. Obviously, it has a lot to do with the question of whether geometry is innate or whether it is learned by experience. So this thing about a blind person becoming sighted, it was not just some thought experiment. It could be done through surgery in certain cases. So let me read to you a report of the experience of such a person. 
This is from the Philosophical Transactions of 1728, a science journal from London. A boy was 13 years old, he had been blind all his life, and he got his sight back through a surgical procedure. And his reactions were as follows, I'm quoting now from this science paper. When he first saw, he was so far from making any judgment about distances, that he thought all objects that he saw touched his eyes as he expressed it, as what he felt did his skin. He knew not the shape of anything, nor any one thing from another, however different in shape or magnitude. But, being told what things were, whose form he knew before from feeling, he would carefully observe them, that he might know them again. But, having too many objects to learn at once, he forgot many of them. One particular, though it may appear trifling, I will relate. Having often forgot which was the cat and which was the dog, he was ashamed to ask, but catching the cat, which he knew by feeling, he was observed to look at her steadfastly, and then setting her down, say, So, puss, I shall know you another time. He was very much surprised that those things which he had liked best did not appear most agreeable to his eyes. He expected that those persons would appear most beautiful that he loved most, and such things to be most agreeable to his sight that were so to his taste. We thought he soon knew what pictures represented which were shown to him, but we found afterwards that we were mistaken. For about two months after he became sighted, he discovered that they represented solid bodies, when to that time he considered pictures only as particolored planes or surfaces diversified with a variety of paint. But even then, he was no less surprised, expecting that pictures would feel like the things they represented, and he was amazed when he found that those parts which by their light and shadow appeared round and uneven felt only flat like the rest, and he asked which was the lying sense, feeling or seeing. Being shown his father's picture in a locket at his mother's watch, and told what it was, he acknowledged a likeness, but was vastly surprised, asking how could it be that the large face could be expressed in so little room, saying it should have seemed as impossible to him as to put a bushel of anything into a pint, that is to say, a larger volume into a smaller. So that's quite entertaining, and it's also quite significant evidence for these debates that we have been considering. Clearly, learning the geometry of sight was a bit like learning a language for this person who became sighted. He didn't immediately understand the geometrical structure of visual impressions. Clearly, all of that is not completely innate then, if we go by this example. So that speaks against a Kantian account that takes Euclidean geometry to be a precondition of any geometrical thought or geometrical sensory perceptions. But the story of the boy who became sighted, it fits quite well, though, with the uh, Poincaré-style account in which uh, the geometry of sight can only be developed gradually through experience and coordination with uh, self-motion. Nevertheless, you can still say that Kant was right in a way. Poincaré is, in a sense, a neo-Kantian. According to Poincaré, Euclidean geometry is not innate, but some geometrical notions are innate. The mind is predisposed to discern geometrical aspects of its surroundings. Hardwired into the mind are not all of Euclid's axioms, but still a good bit of geometry, such as the characterization of which perceptions are related to geometry at all, uh, maybe other related things are innate as well, uh, like concepts of displacement, rotation, and so on. So, in conclusion, we have seen that geometry is perhaps like language in several key respects.
both language and geometry are part innate and part shaped by the environment. And to adopt a particular language or a particular geometry is to choose to fit your thoughts into an arbitrary and subjective framework. But that's a good thing, because there are no objective frameworks. And without some such conceptual framework, thinking would never even get off the ground in the first place. Thank you.